Thank you guys so much for joining us online as well. We're going to be bopping around the New Testament this morning as we continue in our series, We in a Me-Centered World. Last week, Travis was talking about For Better or For Worse in regards to relationships. And if you have any kind of relationship, whether it's with a spouse or with a kid or with family or with friends, sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not, Right? And that's his focus of his message as he looked about how David interacted with Saul and how their relationship changed over the period of, of time in the Bible. And just how Travis kept coming back to, which I thought was so good, just that no matter how crazy things get in this world, we always have the option to press in and engage and to love people well in spite of all the things. Amen? Amen. So this morning, we're going to be talking about, a couple of weeks ago, is we looked at the Good Samaritan parable. I talked about just this idea, this interaction that Jesus had with law, a lawyer in the parable. You should, you probably know it. And just how the interaction was, is like, well, if you just have the right thoughts and the right beliefs, you're good. But actually, Jesus was pressing the lawyer to actually, actually do something about it. Not just have the thoughts in his head, but also let them work themselves out in practices and this morning, I thought it would be good to kind of circle back on that and just add one more thing to the plate, and just feelings. So what I think God wants and calls and asks us to do is to have right thoughts, right practices with their hands, but also right motives in the heart. That was kind of what Travis was talking about last week, and so I thought we would put these two weeks together and do a little bit deeper dive in this morning. And so the, the idea is that when the lawyer asked Jesus to sum up the law and then asked Jesus who his neighbor was, right? He's like, Jesus, and by the way, the lawyer already knew the answer because a good lawyer, right? I don't know if you think they're good lawyers or not. I don't know where you are on that spectrum, right? But the idea, a lawyer doesn't ever ask a question that they, they don't already have the answer to. And the lawyer asked Jesus to, hey, sum up all the law. And it was this idea of, well, actually, Jesus said, you should love God with everything you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then the lawyer asked, well, then who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus began to tell the parable that focused on two things in light of the lawyer's first question, right? It's the, well, how do you sum up all the law into a simple statement? Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And what are the beliefs that we should take from that command that Jesus gave that he was summing up in the Old Testament? And then two, what does it mean to love our neighbor? Because I don't know about you, but like sometimes fences make good neighbors, don't they? Right? I don't. Uh, who? Do anybody have any tree damage? Uh, a couple weeks ago, when we had the storm, we had a, our neighbor's tree fell, uh, crushed our fence, and fell into our yard. And and I was like, oh, we have this huge half of this huge tree in our backyard, which was awesome, right? And I'm like, and I immediately start thinking. I've got to repair the fence. I've got to pay for the repair of the fence. I've never done that before. Do I do that? How do we share all that? And I'm like, well, at least I don't have to pick up the tree, right? Because it was his tree, and it was on his side, and it fell on my side. And guess what? There's actually a law in Texas that says wherever the tree falls, no matter where it falls from, you own it, which meant I had to pick up my part. Well, actually, we're actually pretty good friends, so we actually worked on it together. But sometimes neighbors make good fences, but... Who is our neighbor? And Jesus said, actually, our neighbor isn't geographically based. He de our neighbor isn't defined by the person that we live side by or we work beside or, you know, heaven forbid, the person we drive next to on I-20 as we're trying to make it to work in the morning, right? Like our neighbor is actually determined by the opportunity that God has given us to love and serve them. 
And so Jesus takes this idea, neighbors aren't defined by geography, they're defined by our opportunity to love and to serve them. And so as I said, I think it would be a great way to expand this conversation as we look at not just beliefs, not just practices, but also our feelings. And so this, this idea, this picture of what a balanced spiritual life looks like. And I'm not talking like balance in a new agey kind of, let me get everything centered and make it all work so that I'm good. No, I actually mean where we bring our thoughts and our feelings and our hands all into alignment with what God calls us to do, which is to love him with everything we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen? Which brings us to truth number one. I want to share a couple of truths this morning. A balanced spiritual life, not in a new agey way, equals a growing spiritual life. A balanced spiritual life equals a growing spiritual life. And here's a, just a good reminder, like, who, you know, who's, who's right-handed in this room? Who's left-handed in this room? A few of us are. Like, left-handed is a little more unique, right, isn't it? Have you ever noticed, like, your dominant hand or your dominant side of your body like the other side is not as developed. So like for me, I'm, you're, uh, I'm right-handed, so like you're like, okay, he doesn't really have a bicep. I get that, right? But like my right, my right bicep's a little bit stronger than my left bicep. And it's interesting, isn't it? Like when we were cutting up the tree, like my left arm got really fatigued in a way that my right arm didn't. And it's because my right, I use my right hand a little bit more. And that's the idea. A balanced spiritual life equals a growing spiritual life because God doesn't want us just to use the things that we're good at. Some of us might prefer our minds. Some of us might prefer our hearts. Some of us might prefer our hands. But what God calls us to do is to use all three. God calls us to use all three, not just our heads, not just our hearts, not just our hands, but all three. And so a balanced spiritual life equals a growing spiritual life. Does that make sense? All right, so if I set the table, are we good? Have I bored you enough now where we can just move on and I'll get through? By the way, we have some ba- a baptism today. We're pretty exciting after the service, which is great. We had a baptism yesterday, not in here, but uh, in Joe Pool Lake, I believe, and which was awesome as well. So like God's moving in the life of this church, amen? Yeah, so excited, so excited. So we're going to look at six passages this morning. The title for this sermon is in the series is Three Ways to See a kingdom, which is we, the point of the series is what does it look like for us to be together in a me-centered world? Everything screams to make it about me, right? What was my initial thought when the tree fell in the backyard? It was a, what am I going to have to pay and what am I going to have to do to clean it up? Instead of asking, how can I help my neighbor clean up his tree and how can we take care of the fence together? Isn't it so subtle how me-focused this world makes us? And that we have those things that we like and preferences and all that as well. Well, that's the point of the sermon this morning is that what are three ways to see kingdom vision where we could see we instead of me. Okay, so six passages this morning. The first one's going to be in Colossians chapter 3. The first way we see a kingdom vision is through right beliefs. To be we in a me-centered world is to have right beliefs. And those beliefs don't come from with ourselves. Let's look in our Bibles at chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is Paul writing to a church he helped plant. And he's reminding them, and maybe this is good for you and me as well this morning, that we don't have to live in yesterday's mistakes and successes, that we can actually live in today's and tomorrow's. That's what he means by putting on the new self. That's the 
the, the heading in this chapter. Starting in verse 1, If then you have been raised in Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Praise be to God. And so these beliefs that Paul's talking about don't come from within us. They don't come from around us in the world. They come from, he says it in verse 1, seek the things that are above. You want to figure out where to go from this moment and away from yesterday or last year or the last five years or the things that you're like, gosh, I wish I could take back. I wish I could undo. I wish I could do it differently. Paul says it pretty simply, seek these things that are from above. They're not from within us, but we can see them. And that word seek in the Greek is zeteo, and it literally means zeal. And so Paul is not just saying, hey, look for it. He's saying, look for it at the expense of everything else. Isn't that interesting? Look at it at the expense of everything else, meaning that whatever it is that from above that God is trying to show us, whatever it is that we need in our lives, you and I should look for it in a way that we push everything else off to the side because it is the most valuable thing that we need. And you know that, right? Like if you've ever been hungry, Dean and I, we went hiking. This is before we had kids and we had a life actually, right, uh, with our three kids. And so we went hiking. We went on an extra long hike in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee and we didn't pack enough snacks, and so it took longer than it should. You know how it is. It was like, oh, we could get done in a couple hours. You know how that road trip is like, it should only take like five hours, and it takes eight. Or the one time we tried to drive from Austin to here for Thanksgiving, and it literally took us 10 hours to drive from Austin to here because traffic on 35 was insane because we left at the wrong time. Don't ever leave at the wrong time, right? You know, it's the thing. Always leave at the right time, but I digress. Anyway, um, and so we were so hungry because it took two extra hours. And so we got to the place where we were going to eat, and there was like three youth groups in front of us to eat. And so they were serving like 50 students or I don't know how many students. It was too many, right? And we sat there and waited and smelled the food that we've been waiting for after an extra two and a half hour long thing. Now, when we sat down at eight, like, we didn't, we dispensed with everything else. We didn't do anything else. We didn't talk. We didn't look at each other. We just ate because we were so hungry, right? And that happens, right? That's what Paul is saying. Like, look for the things from above. Zealously look for them. Seek them in such a way that you push everything else off to the side. And I just love this picture. Paul says, you've been raised with Christ, and we have access to those things from above. So if you know Jesus, it's not like we don't have access to him. We have access to him because he lives here. Verse 2, he says, set your mind. So not only are we supposed to zealously look, we're also supposed to set our minds on. So I don't know about you, but like there's sometimes I think I want something and I go after it and I do all the research and whatever, and then I figure out I don't really like it, right? Well, that's not what Paul's saying here either. He's saying not only zealously look for it, not only look look for it at the expense of everything else, but also Set your mind on it. And I just love this picture. If we seek and set our minds, then that gives us the better chance to understand them and also adopt them into our lives. And so I don't know about you, but like a lot of times I interact with like where I fall short and where I'm messing things up and where I'm not getting it right. 
I think it comes back to not the source of information, but just what am I doing with it? Am I understanding it, and am I adopting it into my life, or am I just, okay, God said I should seek him, and then I'm going to do that for a minute, and I'm just going to kind of move on my way. Not only should we seek, but we should set our minds, which means to view those things from above. Or to put it another way, I, just, I love this picture, right? Paul is saying, hey, you could watch a football game. I think there's a football game. Are the Cowboys playing today? Is that happening today? What time is that game? So I should get done about 2.30, right? Is that good? 2.30-ish? I'm a college football fan, so my football weekend's over, so I'm good, right? But there you go, right? Like, Paul is saying, hey, you could watch the football on the TV, and that kind of scratches the itch, doesn't it? But isn't it a different experience in game day, in the stadium, with the rest of the fans? That's what it means for us to be zealous about God. It's one thing just to watch the screen, but it's another thing to participate. Amen? Amen. And just, I love this verse 3, when we seek and set our lives on the things that are above, our life becomes hidden with Christ, which also includes our minds, right? Which brings us to truth number two, having right beliefs requires, I'll just say requires, having right beliefs or right thoughts, the things from above, the things that we should seek at the expense of everything else, the things that we should adopt at the expense of everything else. means that we are zealously seeking the mind of Christ and setting our minds on to that end, right? Not just we're just looking, not that we're just thinking. It's that it becomes woven into us. It becomes woven into us. And so when I, when I think about just this idea, we have the mind of Christ, that means we don't have to have the right beliefs anymore because we have his that are replacing ours, so when I think about what it means to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves, oh my goodness, all I have to do is seek the mind of Christ and set my mind on him, and there's our North Star. I want to read you Romans real quick, just to follow up this passage, and then we'll show you a little clip that I think will drive this point home. Romans 8, chapter 8, Paul again writing, and he says this in verse 5. Just notice how this kind of corresponds with what it is we've just been talking about in Colossians. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You don't want to live according to what you want anymore. That's the flesh. We should live according to things that God wants. And so we set our minds not on the things of what we want, but the things of the Spirit. Another way, just another way of asking. Set your, zealously seek. Set your things and ask the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And we get that, right? Like, we've been down that road, haven't we? Where that thing that we like, gosh, I just want to find a little life. Maybe it'll help my day get better. Maybe I'll just get out of the rut that I'm in if I could just, get, just pull a little something out of this thing. And it never, ever, ever comes through, right? We're setting our minds on flesh. The mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and death. If you need life and peace, set your mind on the things of Jesus Christ. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And then verse 8, I, I didn't throw it in there, but I just want to say it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you want to please God, if we want to set our minds on those things, then it has to come from him. It can't start with us. It has to start somewhere else. And so my encouragement to you this morning is this. 
How about start today with saying, God, what is it that you want from me? God, what is it that you're up to in the world? And how can I participate? How can I think through those things? How can I be moved from emotionally to seek those things and not the things that I would want? Now, we're not just good with our beliefs, right? Because we're looking at two other things. It's our hands and our hearts as well. And I just thought there's a great scene that demonstrates where you have all the right beliefs, but you lose your hands and you lose your hearts in the moment, okay? I'm going to show you a scene from the first Spider-Man movie, which is better. I don't know who the Spider-Man... Who is the Spider-Man these days? I'm not sure. But Tobey Maguire is the best one. I'm just going to say it out loud. I know that's like a, a, a hot take, but whatever. It was the first, and it was so huge. But look at this scene back from the first Spider-Man movie. Let me go ahead and start that. Hopefully there's audio. Maybe there's audio. There's no audio. You want me to act it out? Should I act it out? All right, I'll pantomime it. Okay, so no, anyway, so we can stop it. It's fine. So here's what's happening. Peter needs money because he wants to buy a car because he wants to impress a girl named Mary Jane. You know Mary Jane is the person, right, that he loves. And so he is, he, and so he just participated in a, is it going to do it again? It's not. It's fine. It's no big deal. So he just won uh, a wrestling match, and he was supposed to get enough money to pay for a car, and the guy gives him $100, and he's like, what do you mean? Like, I'm supposed to get $3,000. He's buying a cash car. And the guy goes, yeah, but you didn't do what, you pinned the guy in two minutes, you were supposed to fight for three minutes, take your $100 and leave and get out. And he's really, really upset. And you know, if you've been wronged in that way, especially around finances, you're like, oh my gosh, I want to hurt someone, right? Because I've been so wronged. And as he's leaving, this guy comes in and steals, if you know, if you know the scene, and he robs him, and Peter has the opportunity to stop him, and he just steps aside, Right? And the guy's like, hey, you could have stopped him. That's my money. And Peter says, when was that my problem? Right? And so Peter has the right thoughts. He knows he's been wronged. He knows the difference between right and wrong. But he's so upset. He's so discouraged. He's so frustrated at the guy who's cheated him out of what he needs. Right? He shut his hands and his heart off to the truth. And that's a big thing, isn't it? When we shut our hands and our heart off to the truth that we know to be true, what you don't know, if you've seen it, maybe you should go back and watch it, but the guy that robs him ends up murdering his uncle, and that sets Peter on the course of having to battle through being alone with his grandmother or his, his aunt. And Peter could have stopped it, but you don't know that in the moment, right? And so it's not just beliefs. It's also hands, and it's also hearts. So that's number one. The first way to see kingdom vision is through right beliefs, but it doesn't stop there. It also is through right practices or our hands. Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be next. Let me find it wherever it went. That's not it. I'll find it in just a second. Quick Bible drill. Who knows where Philippians is? There it is. New Te Thank you. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. There you go. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. I'm just going to sit down. I think we're done. Okay, let's take the offering. All right, anyway, here we go. Chapter 4, or chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Now notice, 
the practices or the hands that come out of this passage. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. You know this passage, right? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, so wait, wait that has nothing to do with about hands and practices. We're getting there. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and then what? Practice. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, just starting quickly in verse 4 as we, move, as we move through. Rejoice in all things literally means to cheer, right? And so if you remember a second ago, Paul was talking about, hey, you should zealously seek the mind of Christ. Now he's saying, actually, you should rejoice in all things, which means to cheer. And, and again, using the football game analogy, there's a difference between screaming at the TV, right, versus screaming in the stands of a game, Right? Make sense? Well, Paul is saying you should rejoice in all things, not like you're watching the TV, but like you're at the game. I just love this picture. Before we discuss anything else, finding a place to rejoice in all circumstances is so hard, but also so necessary. So that thing you came in with that you're like, I don't know if I just don't, I want to stop that. I want to move away from that hurt. I have this hope and dream that I have moving forward. I just want to say, find a place to rejoice in that because God will meet you there. And we'll see it here in just a second. It's amazing. Verse five, you know, rejoicing leads to reasonableness, which also means gentleness. And so I don't know about you, but like what would people describe you as? Like, just think about it. Would people describe you as reasonable or gentle? I don't know. Someone said, yeah, they're probably lying. But anyway, right? I don't know, right? But for me, like, I don't know if that's what people would describe me as. But it's interesting. When we can rejoice in all things and find the God of hope in all things, it leads to a gentle soul. It leads to gentleness. And so, like, I don't think we can love God with everything we have and love our neighbors as ourselves if we don't have some kind of element of gentleness that is woven into our hearts. Amen? Yeah, and so the question is, this is, are you gentle? Can we be gentle? Verse 6, again, it's a famous verse on prayer, but look what comes after prayer. Let me come back to verse 7. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God. So in prayer, we let God know all the things we have, those things that we need, those things that we wish we had, those things we wish we hadn't done, those things and hopes that we have for tomorrow, those things that we're looking forward to in this next season. Let everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving be made known to God and the peace of God peace of God. Do you know what that is? Like if God is the best of everything, his peace is better than anything else we could ever find on the planet. It says when we pray with thanksgiving, the peace of God will be with us. It will be with us. 
Not my peace, not your peace, not the world's peace, not that hope that we think will happen one day. If I could just get to next year, I'll be okay. If I could just get this next job, I'll be okay. If I could get my kids to listen to me for more than three seconds, I'll be okay. If I could make the grade, I'll be okay. If I could get the promotion, I'll be okay. That's not peace. That's works. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will do what? Will guard your hearts and your minds. Do you know what our hearts are the source of? Feelings. Do you know what our mind is the source of? Beliefs. The peace of God, when we pray, will guard our hearts and our minds. And that term for guard is a military term. It's not like a fence, like we hope, like we have good neighbors, right? Fences make good neighbors. It's not a fence. It's not a rock. It's literally a guard, a soldier who guards and protects the thing that whatever it is that they're guarding and protecting. So let me re-say it again. God, when we pray with supplication and thanksgivings on the back end of finding an opportunity to rejoice and to praise him even when things are down, even when things are upside down, even when the world's going sideways, his peace will guard our hearts like a soldier. And it got me to thinking, have you ever heard of the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery? You ever seen this? You seen the guys that get that detail? Do you know what they do? They guard the tomb. So it's a soldier. I don't know if it's more than one soldier. Is it more than one soldier's remains or just one? It's, is it two? It's two, right? So it's, they don't know who they are. They've never been identified. But they have a, a shrine there of two American soldiers who are not identified. And there is a military guard on post 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, no matter the weather, no matter the season, no matter the politics all around, like all the stuff, like all the things that are wrong in our country, right? And I'm not going to go into all the things that are right or wrong. I'm just saying, to honor their memory, there's a guard that's posted there at all times. And I think people try to mess with them and like they get tackled and thrown in jail, right? So like this person, like, so these guys take their job seriously. Matter of fact, I've got a picture of it. Like that's one of the soldiers in that storm, there were some other photos I was trying to find, a right one, like literally there was like an inch of snow on top of their hat. Like they hold their post and they stand guard. Now, I just want you to take a moment and think, okay, when we rejoice and when we pray, the peace of God will guard your hearts and our minds just like that person, but they, he will do it perfectly. No matter the storm, no matter the weather, he is with you, but here's the kicker. Here's the difference. Where we don't know who those soldiers are, God knows exactly who your heart is and who you are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Which brings us to truth number three. The peace of God through prayer will never leave or desert you. I don't know where you are this morning. I know some of us probably need to hear that. But the peace of God will never, ever leave or desert you. You might pull away from it. You might go in a different direction. But it will never leave you. Ever. Ever. When God, guard, when God guards our minds, our beliefs, or our hearts, or our feelings, 
And when we pray, God's peace protects us, right? Well, what does that have to do with practice? I want to go back to verse 9 because we glossed over it, but I want to just spend a few minutes here. We're almost done this morning. Remember, right? Starts with beliefs, now it goes to hands, and then here we get in verse 9 in chapter 4. What you have learned and received and heard and seen. This all flows out of the peace of God that is protecting and guarding our hearts. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Because Paul first talks about the peace of God and how it will guard our hearts as we pray and we give thanksgiving. But now he flips it and says, well, actually, if you practice all the things that I've showed you, now it's not the peace of God that guards our hearts. It says the God of peace will be with us. The God of peace will be with us in practice. Not only is the God's peace the fuel for who we are and gives us the opportunity to walk out in some incredibly hard and difficult seasons, but when we do what he's asked, when we try to, you know, we bring ourselves to the table and try to do it in a way that the best that we can according to where we are, not only is his peace with us, then he is with us as well. He is not just the fuel or the object, he is the means of which you and I make our way through this world every day. The fuel and the vehicle, the gas and the car. Which brings us to truth number four. To be close to God means we have to practice what we learn. Or to say it another way, we want to walk with God, it takes prayer and practice. It takes prayer and practice because in the prayer, he gives us the umbrella of his peace to where we, you and I can hang on in spite of anything that's on our plate because we have a hope in him. But also when we serve and when we love and when we put the things that are in our head into our hands and say, let me love others as I would want them to love myself. Let me love God with everything that I have. The God of peace is with us, and so we're never alone. We're never alone in the practice. I think we forget that, because I don't know about you, because I'm a good box checker, and I'm like, man, if I could just do this list today, my day has gotten better at the end of the day is when I started. Do you ever feel that way? Like you have so much to do in, the, in a week, whether it's school for your kids, or work, or family, or home, or other things, and you're like, gosh, if I could just make it through the first half of this week and not murder someone, I'm doing really well. Right? Amen. Right? I mean, that's the thing. But here God, Paul is saying, no, actually, if you put anything that you've learned that's good from the Lord, if you put it in the practice, actually, you don't have to worry about those things because the God of peace is walking with you step by step, which goes far beyond any box checking we could ever do. He literally, you know, the Bible says he inhabits the, the praise of his people. He walks in the practice of his people, too. Right now. So anything that you do today, if you do it for the Lord and because he's asked you to do it, he is there with you. And I think what Satan would rather have you and I do is to feel as disconnected from the Lord as we can. And check out our minds, our hands, and now to our hearts. Before I do that, I want to read you James. Because I think it fits really well. I just want to read this over you this morning. Circle this in, in your notes or in your Bible and read this later this week. But this is really good. We just... We were in just in James like six months ago, I think, or sometime. But it's interesting how this came back up, starting in verse 22. 
but be doers of the word and not hearers only. You want the God of peace to be with you? Be a doer, not a hearer. Receiving your shells, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, the persever- and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Do you know what the kingdom needs right now? People who act. Do you know what this country needs right now? People who act. Do you know what people need who are far from God? People who, who act and are a light in a dark place. He will be blessed in all his doing. Love that. He will be blessed in all his doing. So that's number two. First way to see kingdom vision, to be we in a me-centered world is to have right thoughts. The second way is to be we in a me-centered world with right practices or using our hands. And then the final way, the third way to have kingdom vision this morning is through right feelings. Because we can't forget the feelings piece, right? I want to read you Romans chapter 15 just quickly. Verse 13, one verse, we're almost done. We'll lay in this plane. That's not it. I'm looking at 13. I'm like, oh, 13, look that up later. 13, 13 is not what we want to read out loud right now. <laughs> That's awkward. I'm glad I didn't do that. Seriously, you should look it up later. It's going to be pretty funny to you. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The God of all hope. We've talked about peace of God. We've talked about the God of peace. And now Paul is talking about the God of hope so that the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The God of hope causes each of us to have joy and peace. I can't think of any better feeling than joy and peace. Not happiness, not excitement about my football team, not how much money I have in the account or my kids' grades or if D and I are doing okay or if life is just generally going okay and I don't have a lot of trouble in my world. What we should really strive for, just like when Paul said to set our things on, the, on, our, on, our, on things of above, I think setting our hearts on joy and peace is a good place to start so that we may abound in hope. Amen? Amen. I want to read you this commentator's note. I thought this was really good, so just follow me here. I don't think it's going to be on the board, but I usually don't do this, but I thought this was just really impactful. Biblical hope is a firm conviction that the future promises of God will be fulfilled. That's what hope is, that God will say yes to what he's already said he will do. He will complete what he said he would do. Hope is not mere wish projection. How often do we get ourselves stuck in, man, I really hope this works out the way it needs to, right? I went to the doctor recently, and I'm like, man, I don't know. I haven't been to the doctor in a while, and I really hope my, you know, whatever my numbers are supposed to be, they're going to be whatever they are. That was like wishing something, right? Hope is not just mere wish projection, but an assurance of what will come to pass, not projecting, not wishing, trusting God, he will say what he said he would do. The commentator says this in Hebrews 6, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's Hebrews 6. 
He references 1 Corinthians. Hope takes its place alongside faith and love as one of the Christian virtues that Apostle Paul sets forth in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Hope is faith directed in future. I don't know what your hope is, but it said hope is faith directed toward the future. And then this last paragraph, hope is used in two ways in the Bible. Remember how I said Jesus is the gas and also the vehicle to, to get where we need to go, right? Remember that? Hope is used in two ways in the Bible. Now, the first one's a little, made me a little sad. The less common usage points out the object of our hope. Christ is our hope of eternal life. But that's the less used usage of the word hope in the Bible. The Bible talks about Christ as our object of our hope, but it talks about it more in this way. The more common usage is an attitude of assurance regarding the fulfillment of God's promises. You don't hope in you. You don't hope in the things around you. You hope that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. The Christian is called to hope, that is to have full assurance of the resurrection of God's people and the coming of God's So I say all that, again, it's beliefs, it's hands, it's head, it's hands, it's heart. And you, Christian, are called to hope in the assurance, not just partial assurance, but the full assurance that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that God's kingdom is going to return and fulfilled. And so truth number five, God's hope should be the foundation of our feelings, not what we like, not what we don't like. Not what we want, not what we hope will happen. God's hope should be the foundation of our feelings. So the band's going to come back up. And the thing I've wrestled with this week is what does it look like for me to integrate my head, my hands, and my heart into my life in a deeper way? Or to say it a different way using the sermon title, How can I not just prefer my head, my hands, or my heart, depending on where I am in in any general day, but bring the three of those things together to be balanced in a way where I can not just be a me thinker, but be a we thinker, a we thinker. And I'm reminded of something from the Good Samaritan parable I want to highlight. If you know the story, you've got the priest and a Levite. The guy's been robbed. He's injured. He's half dead, the Bible says. And he's on the road, and there's a priest and a Levite. Those are both religious leaders in Israel, and they see him, and they pass to the other side, right? You know that story? But then the Samaritan comes, and he actually takes care of him and and heals him and puts him up and lets him uh, get better at an inn. But I got stuck on this, they pass to the other side. I got stuck on that phrase, and it was this. Got me thinking, what are some other phrases or other spaces in the Bible where that's happened? And there's a big one in the Old Testament. It's when Moses helped a nation who was escaping Egypt in slavery pass from one side of the Red Sea to the other. And so you've got this picture of the Levite and the priest passing the other side, not wanting to help someone who's injured. And then you've got Moses on the other side who is letting a whole entire nation pass to the other side because of what he was doing as God asked him to. And so I think it's that. What does integration look like? What does it look like for me to have the right head, the right heart, and the right hands as I live my life day to day? And it's simply this, and it's my encouragement to you. Help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. Help them pass from this side to the next. And as we help them pass from this side to the next, guess what happens to us? We pass with them. 
right? So that's my prayer, is that as you leave this moment and you leave this day and as we celebrate a baptism, we celebrate the baptism from this weekend and we get back into the rigmarole of our world and our day-to-day, that we would, God would help us to just think, what does it look like for me to help someone pass from that one side to the other? Amen? Amen. Will you stand and pray with me, please? God, as I think about just that picture, what it must have looked like where the whole nation walked on dry ground from one side to the other, from death into life. And then when I think about the peace of God that comes when we pray and the God of peace who walks with us is, God, you're helping us move from one side to the other. Will you cause us to help us to help other people do the same thing? Because I think that's really the we in a me-centered world. So I pray for all of us this morning, Lord, whatever we came in with, whatever we think we have, whatever we think we need, one, God, that we would say those things to you. You already know what they are. You're the God of the universe who knows everything. But I pray for my friends this morning, Lord, that the peace that surpasses all understanding will come as we rejoice in our circumstances and we offer those things back to you. So as we sing, Lord, let us do that. Let's let us quietly where we are. Say, God, this is where I am. This is what I need. This is what I have. And then I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll show us next steps. Because as we do those things, whatever is excellent, Lord, that you have put in front of us, Lord, that we would do that and that the God of peace would walk with us. Not perfection, not having all the answers, not having everything we need, but walking in spite of all the things. And I also ask, Lord, that you would put people in our paths in such a way that we would help them get to the other side. So I pray, Lord, you speak. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for Jesus. It's in his name. Amen.